Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. I went down to the grocery store to get in. I had to pay a dime or more. I hadn't yet begun to start when I had to pay the rent on the shopping cart. Deedly down, deedly down, deedly down, Well, I let the kids loose on the floor and they ran around for a while or more. The supermarket, the grocery store. That's what we're going to talk about today. In Don DeLillo's novel, White Noise, the supermarket uh, is uh, this incredibly important place. There's a character named Murray who's a visiting lecturer who talks about it as a gateway or pathway to spiritually charged levels of consciousness. All the colors and numbers and everything that you find there and the doors slide open unbidden and close behind you. Uh, We like the supermarket. I, I find the supermarket exciting to visit because quite a bit of effort has been put into arranging products, designing products, designing packaging in a way that is meant to excite me. And I am duly excited. And now I can't go or it's very difficult to go. It's it's a perilous undertaking to go. So what do you do? Uh, and I was thinking about this while reading an article by Ann Maloney, a food reporter and editor at the Washington Post. And she just did a terrific article about how you can go grocery shopping every two weeks without hoarding or anything like that. It just takes a little thinking. And so she's with us today. A lot of people are with us today. Here in the first segment, we'll be talking to Anne. We'll also be talking to Robert Laban Jr., the president and CEO of Laban's Markets here in Connecticut. Uh, They are the first markets in America, I believe, to uh, institute temperature checks uh, for customers. But they've got also done a lot of thinking about this situation we're in. So we're going to start there. In the second segment, we'll be talking to uh, uh, an expert uh, on on how viruses survive on surfaces, whether you have to be kind of worried about packages, uh, and if so, how worried you have to be. And then at the end of the show, we'll have to talk about toilet paper, because obviously somehow or other toilet paper uh, is some kind of apex of the whole problem of getting things that you want. But we're going to begin uh, with, as I said, Ann Maloney uh, and Robert Laban Jr. Uh, why don't we start uh, with uh, Robert Laban Jr. Uh, first of all, uh, welcome to our show. Hello, Colin. And, thanks for being here. Well, uh, thanks for you. Thanks, thanks for being on, on our show. So uh, maybe we should begin with, uh, you know, the, this landscape keeps changing all the time, and we've gotten more guidance from our governor, Ned Lamont, about wearing masks in the last 24 hours. But you really took kind of an unusual and early step, right? You're using a, a temperature gun to check uh, all customers? It was actually back in March. My wife is currently working in the ICU. So when she told me that the hospital was taking her temperature every day, I said, well, that's an essential business. So are we with the 30,000 transactions a week. So why not us? So I would have started it in the end of March if I could have gotten the equipment, but it took about 10 days. So we're about two weeks now. We've been taking temperature checks and uh, I think 98, 99% of the customers are happy that we're doing it. There's a few people that think we're violating their civil rights or ADA or so um, it's a HIPAA law violation. But my whole thing every day when I wake up is I want to keep my people, uh, their families and my customers safe. 
And uh, you are also going to add a, a, a mask requirement, right? Starting Monday, I was waiting for, I just literally got them in uh, last night, 5,000 masks. So uh, as of Monday or even sooner, customers are going to be required to have a mask. If they don't have one, they can buy one for a dollar just on the honor system when they check out. If they're unemployed and not working, then the masks are free. I just, again, want to keep all our people safe. We have no one sick and I want to stay that way. All right. So now no, let's also talk. Let's bring Ann into the conversation. I want both of you to talk about this. But once people get their mask and they have their temperature checked and they walk into uh, Le Bon's or, or any other grocery store or supermarket, um, and one of your basic arguments is that's not the time to start thinking about what you're going to get, right? The, the time to do that was a lot earlier. Right, exactly. Um, you know, the days when you could wander into the store and stroll aisle to aisle and think about, oh, what do I feel like eating today? Uh, I think you really need to leave that thinking at home and come with a plan. And of course, you have to be flexible because I'm sure, you know, Bob will tell you, you might come with a plan and that whatever you were planning to eat is not available. You know, that does happen right now. Uh, there are certain products that aren't available. So you need to be flexible. But um, Basically, if you can plan your meals for a couple of weeks and make yourself a good grocery list, you, you, you've got a leg up on getting everything you need quickly, getting in and getting out. And that should be your goal at this point. This is, um, I too love to go to the grocery store. I would go maybe three, four times a week. Um, now I'm trying to go once a week or, or even um, once every week and a half or so. I haven't quite made it all the way to two weeks yet. I'm, I'm, that is my goal. And, and um, another thing you recommend is before you even do that, figure out what you actually do have in your house. What's in your refrigerator? What's in your freezer? What are in your pantry shelves? That, that is an absolute, I mean, everyone should do that anyway, but right now um, it's a great idea. Literally go through your cabinets. And if you want to make yourself a list, you can make it on your computer or you can just make it on a piece of paper and literally go through all your dry ingredients, you know, your canned goods, your condiments, all the things that you have on hand. And then look in your freezer and look in your refrigerator and look at all of that first and see what could you make with that? Because you might be surprised. I mean, I have had readers tell me <laughs> that they've gone into their pantries and found eight and 10 and 12 year old products. There are things, you know, everyone's different. Some people, you know, have small homes and don't have a lot of food. Some people um, also uh, maybe don't have a lot of money to buy a lot of food. And I get that. But there are many, many people who have a lot of really good food, long lasting food in their house right now that they could eat. And also, once you know what you have, then you can start building recipes around that and deciding what it is you want to do. So, yes. Do a really good inventory and understand what you've got and um, and then make a list of what are the essentials that you have to have or what do you need that you really don't have that you absolutely have to have. Do that first. So let, let's go over to Bob Laban. You've seen a lot of people shop for groceries in your lifetime. And these days, what you probably want, especially not that you're anxious to get rid of your customers, but you would like to get them in the market, shop efficiently and get out of the market. You're trying to minimize the number of people who are in there. So so what do people do right and what do people do wrong, Bob? Well, it's still mind-boggling to me. We have a large concentration of senior uh, customers, people over 70, I would say, and it's hard to change habits. And I'm still shocked at seeing these people that have coming in three, four times a week. So I would hope that family members would reach out or neighbors to, 
to shop for those so they can stay home because I think it's just hard to break habits. I had to threaten my own parents that I would take their cars away if they didn't stay hunkered down. They're both in their 80s. So um, I think like uh, Ann said, you know, being prepared because you're probably not going to find either the cereal or the orange juice or the kind of milk that you like. And, and I just think people need to realize this could be on for months. These shortages in production are going to happen and it's not going to go away anytime soon. So have your list, be flexible. And uh, if you have a plan, a lot of our customers know our store, they know which aisle their items are in. So, you know, with the arrows up and down, try to be efficient, just go aisle one, two, three, instead of the zigzagging like they used to in the past. Right. Do you have, Bob, do you have Instacart type shoppers, uh, people who are doing shopping for other people in your store? We decided not to outsource it. So it's all people that I just wanted to have total control. So it's all our own people that are shopping and delivering. And that's the other thing is that when people are calling their orders, they're still ordering old fashioned, like, well, just for the next three days. So Mm -hmm. I'm saying, you know what, we're five to seven days out on reserving uh, spots for shopping. So why don't you order for a week to 10 days versus for the next two to three? And uh, Maloney, I I do think that one of the things that uh, I've been doing a little bit more of is, is being honest with myself about products that work well in a situation and, and, and don't. And I'm not going to ask Bob about this because then he'd have to ha- have his, his opinion about it known. But one thing that I realize is most of those sort of pre-washed salad mixes, you know, they don't, they're not very stable. It takes almost no time at all before the spring mix from some brand that's, you know, no, no matter what it says on the container, they start, they get kind of wilty. I think you're a lot better off buying actual heads of lettuce or whatever kind of green you want. You know, that's, it, that's really true if you're, if you're, um, uh, if you're, if you've got a household with a lot of people in it, that's fine. You buy yeah. that bag of lettuce, you open it, you have that for dinner and it's gone. So that's, that's great if you've got three kids, but if it's just you or you and one other person, it is a good idea to go ahead and buy the heads of lettuce and clean them and, and, and do that yourself. And the same is true of, you know, any, any chopped or prepared foods, like those convenient foods. If you're gonna eat them right away, that's great. But if you're looking for something to last a little longer in your fridge, whole and in the skin is is better, basically. And also this, that's true of other products too. I mean, you want long lasting products that are nutritious and have a long shelf life. Whole wheat pastas, you know, brown rice, things like that, that are, um, uh, that you know are gonna last a long time in the pantry as well. Right. Um, one of the things that I've done, well, I, I should mention, uh, we have Bob Laban here. There are four Laban's markets, I believe, in Watertown, Woodbury, Salisbury, and Prospect. So we're talking about the northwest uh, of the state. Um, Bob, I should ask you this. There's uh, One reads now of the idea that there might be some kind of meat shortage. There are obviously notably some meatpacking uh, facilities that have had to close because they have uh, employee illnesses. Is this something that you're worried about or that we should be worried about? Um, I, I think there is going to be a shortage of uh, products, again, um, with uh, the Smithfield plant in uh, North Dakota being the largest uh, production facility in the country and 5% of all the pork in the U.S. Um, goes through that plant. So with that plant closed, you're going to see shortages in pork. And Tyson has also had to close plants for chicken processing. So I think, and again, what happens is everything gets backed up. So from the farmer that is actually 
um, breeding the pork and breeding the chickens, they're stopping the breeding process because they know if, if the plant down the road, you know, three weeks or, or three months, whatever, depending on the protein, can't process that uh, animal, they're not going to get paid. So this is going to really take a, a hit in the industry for really months, could go into the fall. Um, obviously, in that it is something that people are concerned about and worried about. But one of the things that you advise against is overstocking, uh, just because you're maybe a little bit worried about the, the the supply problem that Bob just described. It's probably a bad idea to you know buy some insane number of pork chops and freeze them. I agree. I think we all have to use you know caution and just be patient and buy what you need for the as answer the next week, ideally up to two weeks. But if you start buying more than that, you're going to take away from somebody else. So if we just can remain calm, I think we'll still be able to maintain. We may not have the, the specialty cuts of, you know, Purdue uh, items, a lot of prepared items in these uh, large companies. I think it's going to be back to basics, which I don't think is a bad thing. You know, having grown up, you know, 52 years ago, there was whole milk and quartz, half gallons and gallons. And that's it. That was your choice. Now we have 250 choices of kinds of milk and maybe less is more in the future. Uh, Ann Maloney, one thing that I've been trying to do also is to buy something that I can make a lot of or make it last over the course of a week. For example, I bought a large pork roast or it was a sort of a butt type of cut of pork, which I slow cooked and kind of made pulled pork out of on Sunday. And it was dinner on Sunday, but it's been lunch for the rest of the week. And I shipped some out to my son. I mean, if, if you do buy a big thing and use it wisely, uh, Anna Maloney, I, I would assume that might be an effective strategy. Yeah. And, and you should, you should get enough to feed your family for a couple of weeks. That's great. And you, if you have room in your freezer and you have the money to buy it, there's nothing wrong with getting a few extra packages of meat or what, or fish or whatever it is that you want that you can freeze. That's, that's a great idea. And, and the other thing that, you know, I did was I made a huge vat of um, vegetarian tomato sauce mm. and you can use that, you know, in a, Myriad, just so many different ways, so many different recipes you can use tomato sauce in. Um, you can make something as simple as shakshuka, and then you can uh, turn it around and put it on a little penne pasta with Parmesan and whatever else you might have, you know, frozen peas and have dinner. So think about some big pot things that you can make, especially if you go to the grocery and you had a plan and, and that looks like it's not going to work, but maybe you see canned tomatoes, go home and make yourself a big portion of that, freeze it in small packages, date it, put the number of ounces on it. Another great thing to make is a big a big pot of your favorite beans and then freeze those in portions. And then you can take those, you can make tacos out of them. You can make, you can eat them over rice. You can make salads out of them. You can do all sorts of things with them. So I think that's a really excellent idea. And, and let's face it, if we're cooking for ourselves three meals a day, seven days a week, and we used to go out, Sometimes we get tired of cooking. So sometimes you're going to want to grab something out of the freezer that you've made, heat it up and eat it. You're, you, you, even if you have time on your hands, you might just not feel like cooking if you've been cooking every day, every day, every day, especially if you're not used to it. 
You know, um, I want to go back to a point Bob made about uh, some of the people who are there three or four times a week, especially some of the older customers. One thing that we could all do is, you know, if you know somebody uh, and you're going to the grocery store, you're making one of your ideally rare trips to the grocery store during this time, you could just ask, you know, do you need, is there one thing or two things that you need? Uh, some other members of our family was were nice enough to know. I, 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 t- I make lattes for my coffee and I was running out of milk. And so two half gallons of milk appeared here. That was kind of all we really needed as an emergency. So one thing that you can do anyway is if you can do like little things for other people, pick up little things for other people. Thanks, by the way, Hope and Jamie for the milk. Um, but um, but Bob, we should say a little bit about the people that you have working there. You've got cashiers and shelf stockers. And you know, this I'm sitting home doing my job at home. They can't do that. And I'm sure as a CEO, there's some things you'd like to say anyway about your employees, the position they're in, and, and maybe how we should be treating them. Oh, it's they are really, again, having seen the medical side with my wife, you know, in the hospital as an ICU nurse right now, we're the same thing just on the retail side. Um, we don't, aren't wearing a lot of PPE. I gave all my employees masks uh, over two weeks ago so um, and made it mandatory. So I just wish people would be patient and get used to this is going to be the new norm for the foreseeable future. So have patience. Uh, and I think, you know, again, 98% of the customers are just a few people that why don't you have my flavor of, you know, oatmeal or whatever. And, you know, that is going to continue. So get used to it. But uh, really practice the social distancing. Don't crowd. Uh, when they're putting up produce, don't reach over their shoulder to grab something. So it's just common courtesy and respect. I think uh, if we all could do that because we are in this for the long haul. And I keep telling my people, that's why we're closed on Sundays, just to give our people a break. It's not about, you know, maximizing the business. It's about saying, are we getting the necessary rest? And you know what, let's take a day off and we're all doing now. This will be our fourth Sunday that we've been closed. And I think they really appreciate it. In addition to giving them $2 an hour for every hour they worked and um, an extra 10%. So they're getting 30% off their groceries while this whole thing is going on. Um, uh, that is great. I, I just want to say, because there's nobody right here on the show who can speak up for them, but the people who are doing the kind of Instacart shopping and some of the other grocery stores, they, you know, they're in a, also a very tough position where in order to make their ends meet, they're having to, you know, I'm, I would be nervous about doing one grocery shopping trip a week. I would take uh, lots of precautions. They're doing a lot of those trips uh, every day. Uh, and it's more difficult for them now because the apps are over loaded. The computer part of their job is often crashing. Um, obviously, if you're standing there uh, in an aisle looking for 10 minutes at different cake mixes uh, and they need to get something that somebody else has on their list, I mean, you should maybe also, it's another reason you want to maybe go through the store fast, but that's a whole other class of kind of endangered uh, employees, people who are trying to do this job that, you know, those of us who are in the older segment of society really, uh, really want. Hey, Ann Maloney, any other uh, important tips that we, we haven't mentioned so far, uh, things that people should think about as they, they make that plan? Well, one of the things that we just have had a lot of conversations with readers about recently is embracing substitutions, just what Bob is saying. Okay, you go in there and they don't have basil, but fresh basil, but you see fresh sage. Or what, whatever it is that you went looking for, try to think about what you could sub, 
out for that item. And it takes a little bit of practice, but there are, are books you can buy. There's a, a food substitution Bible. You can search on the, um, on the internet for this. We have a story up on our site. You know, assess the situation, figure out what does this thing do in the recipe, and do I have something else that could do that? Um, lemon juice and pickle brine instead of vinegar, for example, just things like that. Um, and, you know, you think about the function of the ingredient, what it's doing in the recipe, and then, you know, relax a little bit with recipes. They, some of them, you have to follow them to the letter of the law. If it's baking, you know, something is weighed and it's got to be really precise. Most other recipes, use them as guidance and as suggestions and experiment a little bit with it. You know, you don't want to go crazy because you don't want to waste anything, but you have a lot more flexibility than you might think. And try to relax into that and also just relax that you might not get the thing you're craving. You might not be able to satisfy every craving right now, but you will get nutritious food and you'll feed your family. And that's what's most important. Right. Bob, that gets back to the thing that you were saying before about milk. I mean, we've now grown accustomed to looking at recipes that tell us to go get some pink Himalayan salt, um, which, you know, really actually does taste pretty much like salt. But there's this, we our expectations have gotten kind of crazy about what sort of products there would be out there and whether we would need them. I mean, this week, the latest list is 1,000 items that have been permanently discontinued until further notice. And these are not just off-the-wall brands. These are Bounty, Charmin, Tide, um, Bush Beans, Mott's Applesauce. I mean, these are key items, and, and it keeps growing every week. So, again, be patient, be creative. Um, and I think when you're buying, you know, instead of buying three potatoes, buy a five-pound bag. Again, as Ann said, think for the long term. And I just still think there's a high percentage of people thinking, well, this is going to be over by May 1st. And I would get used to this new routine and adapt and, and make it easier for your family. And again, just be patient. And I think anything that you could say along the thank you would be great because uh, our people are working a lot of overtime and they're tired and they're pressured. So I really appreciate my 420 people that are uh, working hard and, and trying to stay safe and keep our customers safe. All right, that's Robert Laban Jr., president and CEO of Laban's Markets. There's four of them in northwestern Connecticut, more or less. Uh, Ann Maloney is food reporter and editor of the Washington Post. You really should be reading her coverage. It's uh, super useful. And speaking of useful, you probably have some anxieties about packages of things. You come home with a box of things or something gets delivered to your door. Can you touch it? What happens if you touch it? Can you transfer the coronavirus to you? We're going to explain, or I'm not going to explain. Somebody who knows is going to explain after this. All right. We are back. So, you know, a lot of us have managed to never, I haven't been to the grocery store in a really long time, like more than 30 days. Uh, but I get stuff and I do curbside pickup and things get delivered here. And my significant other does occasionally go to the grocery store. And then there's that whole question of the packages, the 
cartons, the surfaces of containers. Uh, and at the beginning of all this, uh, I was pretty paranoid about those things. I just looked at them as potential teeming vectors of death. Uh, and then actually I read an article by our guest, Joseph G. Allen in the Washington Post. Uh, Joseph G. Allen is an assistant professor of exposure and, ex and assessment science and director of the Healthy Buildings Program at Harvard University's T.H. Chan School of Public Health. And after I read that article, I had, I think, a somewhat more realistic understanding of uh, what uh, what the risks were and weren't. So. Uh, first of all, welcome to our show, sir. Uh, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. So a lot of this, I, I do think, for those of us who read a lot of stuff, some of the early paranoia or concern arose in particular from a, um, a medical journal article that talked about the virus being detectable on various kinds of surfaces, metal, plastic, etc., for X amount of time. But one of the things that you helped me understand is detectable doesn't necessarily mean that the virus that's detected is capable of doing the bad things that we worry about viruses doing. Yeah, so um, you're right, you know, and there's, there's a lot of anxiety out there. And, and uh, to me, it's totally understandable um, because the public is uh, inundated with a flood of information, some scientific, some pseudoscientific, lots of news, and it's hard to decipher uh, what's real and what's not. And, and by the way, that study is real science. So I'll just say that I'm not classifying that as pseudoscience. That's real science. But the challenge then is how do you interpret that science into an understanding of exposure and risk? So one of the motivations for writing that piece in the Washington Post was I saw the anxiety level rise after that paper was published. It was a preprint paper. And for your listeners, it was a, it was a study that looked at how long this virus, SARS-CoV-2, could survive on different surfaces. And they found that it could survive for uh, a day, sometimes a little bit more, depending on the surface. And this spawned a whole set of uh, headlines that uh, that was responsible for this raised anxiety and even YouTube videos, um, you know, with people uh, being really alarmist, in my opinion, about uh, how you should handle your groceries. And it's frankly scared a lot of people into going to the grocery store. So that was my motivation for writing the piece was to place that science into an understanding of what that actually means in terms of exposure and risk. Uh, and as I explained in the article, and we can keep discussing, uh, that risk is what I describe as de minimis, which is a way of saying the risks are low and manageable. So if we take some simple precautions uh, and, send, and we're sensible about it, we can manage this risk entirely um, and, and feel okay about going to the grocery store. One of the uh, terms that you use that, and we, and we on public radio, we like terms like this is the sufficient component cause model. Now, that does seem like a bit of a mouthful, but it, it really has to do with what? A chain of events that would have to happen. It would have to be a perfectly intact chain for, say, a box that came from Amazon to uh, infect the recipient of the box with COVID-19. Yeah, yeah. So don't scare your uh, audience away from reading the article because uh, most of it's really accessible. But of course, <laughs> I'm true. professor at a school of public health, yeah. so I have to slip in some uh, epidemiology and uh, and some frameworks. And the framework I talk about there is the sufficient component cause model. All right. So what does that mean? It's really quite simple. It means you have to have a lot of the components. Think of a, a, a pie. A, we call it a causal pie, and you have to have all of these things in place to be impacted. So you have to have, let's say, virus on a package. Um, but then you also have to touch that package within a certain number of time. You have to transfer that onto your hands. You have to take that into your mouth. It has to 
uh, lodge and start uh, uh, reproducing inside your body. So a lot of these things have to happen uh, to finish this causal pie, right? So, so that going back to that first study, detecting the virus after a certain number of time does not mean there is a risk necessarily. Uh, and importantly, over time, quickly in a logarithmic fashion, so or just rapidly decays or inactivates. So these scientists detected, let's say, uh, this virus on cardboard after 24 hours. But the reality is that pretty quickly uh, after the virus is on the cardboard, it, it, it inactivates. So what's left is a small fraction of what was what was at the beginning. Um, but let me be really clear here. I don't want to minimize that risk entirely, right? What we call fomite transmission or the ability to transmit viruses and other, this virus and other diseases from inanimate objects or packages is real. It can happen. It does happen. Um, but, but the bigger point is that there are steps you can take to break that causal chain quite simply. Right. And, and the most obvious and, uh, you know, accessible of those is to wash your hands, the thing we keep talking about anyway. Right. I mean, if you if you are going to touch something that you're worried about, uh, wash your hands right afterwards. Yeah, I mean, I love it. We're actually getting back to Public Health 101. And the reason it's Public Health 101 and the basics is because it works. So uh, absolutely. If I were to take a package, uh, a delivery package, um, and I took it or, and I could leave it outside or maybe just bring it right inside the door of my house and set it down, then go wash my hands. So I've disrupted any potential causal chain. Then if I don't have to touch that package for an hour, two, four, even a day, if you can, maybe longer if you want, uh, you can be quite confident that any virus that was on it uh, wouldn't be there. But it's also important to think about what would have to happen in that time train, uh, time phase leading right up to when you received it, right? In a worst case scenario, the driver is sick symptomatic, coughing, shedding a high viral load, walks to your door, coughs right on the package at that instant, right? That's worst case, which isn't likely to happen anyway for many reasons. But even in that scenario, you take that box, put it inside your door, wash your hands, the risk is low to you. And if you wait uh, for time to pass, then the virus will inactivate over time. So the risk stays low again. If you need to use that thing right away, you can wipe it down. Uh, open the box, recycle the, the, the cardboard package, wash your hands again, and you'll be fine. So I think we have to be sensible about the, these interventions we can take and also thinking about that full causal pie, all the, cha- all the ways it would have to happen uh, for, you to, for, for it to be a really high risk. I would say this, too. You know, we're talking about here our, our necessities, right? Uh, we're we're going to all have to go grocery shopping. So I'm not talking about just going out and frivolous shopping. We're going to have to do it. So it's a it's a low risk, it's manageable, and it's one we have to take. Uh, and we're all going to have to also receive packages from time to time. I, I, that's the nature of what we're facing. Um, so knowing that, right, these are risks, uh, very low risks that we have to take. We're going to have to keep do this to keep society functioning, uh, and we can manage it. So it doesn't have to be so uh, anxiety-producing. Yeah. I should say, by the way, the public radio listeners, they like to know about things like sufficient component cause model because then they can bring it up in conversations that makes them sound really smart. They'll probably they'll just say, you probably don't know about sufficient component cause model uh, and lord it over other people. But another way that I look at it is, I mean, I having read your article, I kind of turned it into something in my own brain. And it's what I call the unluckiest person in the world. You would have to be the unluckiest person in the world to have this sequence of events. 
events uh, happened so perfectly that you got infected in this you know very unlikely way and and I sometimes will say that I mean every once in a while I'm out walking my dog and I go around a bend in a trail and there's somebody else with the dog and we're standing a little bit closer than we should be and I'll kind of avert my back and try to get my dog past and then I'll think afterwards I would have to be the unluckiest person in the world for that particular encounter to give me COVID-19 nobody coughed or sneezed or it was just a little thing that happened uh, yeah, I think I, that's that, a nice way to think about it. Yep. So, but I, um, we're also caution too. Just uh, you know, it, it's that it, it, it's uh, you still want to take all these precautions to oh, make, yeah. to, to help you uh, to help with your luck there, right? You want to drive your luck yes. down, and the way to do that is to wash your hands, cover your cough, wear a mask when you're out, do all these precautions. Yeah. All right. So that leads us perfectly into another article that you've written for The Washington Post. Uh, and, and here in Connecticut, we've gone kind of uh, up a notch or two in terms of the guidelines bordering on requirements to wear masks. Our governor now is basically saying, you know, if you're going to be anywhere where you're going to maybe be somewhat close to other human beings, he would like us to wear masks. So... One thing that I discovered reading your article is that I, although I do have a mask and it's a mask that I'm very proud of, uh, it's not exactly the right kind of mask. And maybe we'll, we'll maybe we'll start there. You 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 say that the the ideal mask has two straps on it, one and and they go kind of around the back of your head, right? Well, yeah, but maybe we should talk about why masks. Oh yeah, let's start there. Good idea. Because there's many different options, but. And again, the motivation for writing that article was I saw this public health intervention tool, mask wearing, uh, and I saw a lot of hesitancy and, and uh, quite honestly, some misinformed uh, guidance out there on masks. And I wrote this piece ahead of the CDC guidance uh, to, to make the case what I see a fourfold benefit of mask wearing for the public and, and quickly and simply, and I'm happy to dive into these deeper, but the first is if, if you're infectious, it protects you from infecting others because it'll catch large droplets as you talk, cough, sneeze, right? Second, if you come across someone, your story of walking the dog, coming around the corner, and they happen to be infectious. Well, it provides a barrier, not a perfect one, but a barrier to you. So it's a layer of defense. Third, it's a reminder not to touch your nose or mouth or your face. This is one way we transfer the virus uh, into our bodies. And the fourth is it, uh, maybe most important, it's a social cue. And I, I'm really pleased to see some, some leaders at the state level, at least, uh, you know, starting to wear these in public to, to, to model this behavior. Uh, and it's a signal to everyone, look, I care about you. Uh, I'm being cautious, precautious here. And there's something bigger happening. We need to be take, all be taking precautions, uh, including this social distancing. So I see a fourfold uh, value proposition there. And to be very clear, when I'm talking about masks, I'm not talking about the masks for healthcare workers. There is a very real shortage and so the general public should not be using commercial grade masks, like maybe you've heard of an N95. Mm -hmm. uh, what I'm talking about here is homemade masks for now, while the supply chain is uh, severely short. Uh, and these can be quite effective. So we can talk about what masks to use, uh, but that's the real why we should be wearing masks. And I'm glad we're starting to see this uh, action. And, and also cultural norms are changing. You start, it used to be maybe um, a month ago, it would seem awkward or out of place to see someone wearing a mask during a walk. And already, uh, it's not, at least where I live. Um, I'm getting quite used to seeing people in masks. So cultural norms are changing quickly. So it's got to cover your nose and cup your chin. Yep. And one thing that I think, you know, maybe runs counter to some people's inclinations is once it's on your face, 
you don't want to monkey around with it. I think people, you know, they want to breathe through their nose or something, so they want to pull it down, or maybe they, they get a phone call or something, and they they want to uncover their mouth or something. I mean, once it's once you're masked, once you've donned, the, to use the term, the mask, uh, you, you, you really shouldn't be touching it. Yeah, and I use those terms in the articles. Maybe your listeners like this too, but uh, the editor didn't think it was real. But in my field, we call it donning and doffing for putting on a mask and taking it off. And there's a right and a wrong way to do that. Um, yeah, so once it's on your face, you don't, right, you don't want to have it be a reason that you're touching your face more. And actually, that's one of the reasons I've heard argued against masks, that, hey, people will monkey with it a bit more, uh, and then that's more hand-to-face behavior. Um, but uh, we just have to remind people or train them. We don't just say wear a mask. We say, this is how you do it. This is how you do it properly. And also, don't do this. Just like we would never say uh, to tell people, wash hands. No, we say, wash your hands often. And by the way, watch this video. And we all now know the right way to do it and the wrong way to do it. So it has to come with that kind of public education campaign um, as well on the right and the wrong way to wear a mask. So we're not doing that extra hand uh, or face touching behavior. Right. So and, and rather than try to absorb this on the radio, as you're saying, videos or your article in The Washington Post, which we will link to, is, is the is probably a better way to learn it. But you do want to take it on and put it off a, a certain way. Uh, you also uh, talk about the fact that either you want to wash it after you use it or you could if you're not going to use it for really long periods of time. You could do kind of what you do, what you can do with an Amazon parcel, right? Which is just put it in a bag or something like that and stay away, keep it away from you for four or five days until the virus. I mean, the, the virus can't survive indefinitely, even if your math, mask did pick up something while you were wearing it. Uh, I assume if you don't use it for a while and you keep it out of harm's way, uh, the virus is going to die. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, you know, we and it's one of the reasons I put this. In, I was intentional about it in the article after I talked about the why was that. Then I added the how to, um, and this gets into the. Your listeners can read that article and understand really simple steps. Just a couple steps on how to do it right, including how to care for it. Right. So uh, in my field, we talk about PPE and masks all the time, and not not just it works, but also how to care for that mask. So in this case, right, you should wash your cloth mask. 100% cotton works uh, not, not as well as the N95 mask, certainly. Um, but uh, I, I make that recommendation in the article because it's something that most people have in the house could fashion themselves. Or even better, uh, go on Etsy and then hire someone who's working at home to make you a mask for a couple of dollars. Uh, there's all sorts of styles out there. It's really quite great. My daughter made me one, which is terrific. My fifth grade daughter. So, um uh, yeah, the, so you can have these uh, masks and you can wash them. You should wash them. But also, you're right. The virus doesn't survive over time, just like the conversation we have with the package. You're exactly right. So you could have a five masks or three masks and cycle them. So you'd wear it on a Monday and you don't wear that mask again until a Friday. Uh, and then by that time, that's plenty of time. Um, and then you could cycle through your mask. But you should still, it's a good idea to wash them. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So we're going to stop there. Uh, although what I would say, which has been so great, actually, about both segments that we've done here so far, people really do get worried and the tension takes a lot out of you and you get more tired faster uh, because you're so concerned walking into a grocery store or doing something else. And just knowing, knowing what vigilance actually is, what constitutes uh, best practices and also what constitutes real risk uh, may help some people calm down a little bit because yeah, life is just very hard 
hard to live. It's hard to live life these days. Uh, there are so many ancillary worries, some of which are very warranted and some of which maybe not so much. Thanks so much to Joseph G. Allen, Assistant Professor of Exposure and Assessment Science and Director of the Healthy Buildings Program at Harvard University's T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Of course, we've got to talk about toilet paper. And of course, we're going to do it last because toilet paper is something you use at the end and on the end. All right, time to say some thank yous and uh, dish out some credit. Uh, Cat Pastor is uh, there in the studio. Uh, apropos of our, our coming conversation, she has access to institutionally purchased toilet paper while the rest of us aren't using it. I'm guessing she has as much toilet paper as she could possibly want there in the building. Uh, but otherwise, it's like the only advantage I can think of uh, to what she's doing, which is uh, putting herself in the, WT, the WNPR studios so the rest of us don't have to. Thanks, Kat. Thanks to Jonathan McPants. Uh, he's the guy who produced the show and uh, behind the scenes senior producer uh, Betsy Kaplan, Katie Tularski, the big boss, and the even bigger boss, Tim Rasmussen. Thanks to all of you and our tech people, uh, Gina Matruda and Joe Koss as well. All right. It's toilet paper time. I did not see this coming, although apparently I should have. Uh, it's time to talk about it. Uh, and a lot of theories have been put out. Uh, including our friend Henry Alford, who just took the whole thing back to Sigmund Freud. Uh, Mark Fisher has also written about it for The Washington Post. He's been with us before, uh, usually talking about, I, I think, probably a little bit more political questions uh, than toilet paper. Uh, but uh, he's got his finger on the pulse of this one. Mark Fisher, welcome back. Good to be with you, Colin. So this isn't just an American problem. That's news one, right? You 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 discovered this happening all over the world. Give us some examples. Well, we haven't quite gotten to this point yet, but down in Australia, they're actually using toilet paper rolls as currency. You can go into a cafe and get a latte for three rolls. Uh, so you can do the math on what, uh, say, uh, you know, a couple of steaks might cost. Uh, but uh, it, it really is a shortage in many parts of the world right now where toilet paper is the primary uh, product used for that purpose. We have to say that Americans are kind of uh, in the minority around the world because in much of the world people use bidets uh, and water and other forms to do their cleaning. And uh, we are, however, quite addicted to toilet paper and particularly to the soft stuff. All those years of marketing have really sunk in. Yeah. So um, the, the way that this has kind of affected the industry is incredible, right? I mean, the jump is uh, in, in purchasing over about four weeks in March was what? Effectively a doubling of what we ordinarily buy? Yes, exactly. So some of this is simple hoarding. When people realized they were going to be home for a long time, they wanted to stock up. And we see this all the time with snowstorms and hurricanes. The holy trinity of hoarding is milk, bread, and toilet paper. Not quite sure why toilet paper fits in there with milk and bread, but uh, it does make people feel more comfortable to have that ready supply at home. In this case, however, it's not like a storm. It's not localized. It's nationwide. So the demand has been through the roof. And uh, the other factor, as you mentioned at the top, was that there is 
a different kind of toilet paper out there that's sitting in all of our offices and factories and schools and restaurants, and it's not being used because we're not going to those places. So there's a real mismatch between what's available at the grocery store, which is nothing, and what's available sitting out there for institutional use, which is a lot, but there's no way to get it to the grocery stores. It's made by different companies. It's made in different factories. It's distributed through different channels. It's even packaged differently. Those institutions buy it in giant bulky packages that you wouldn't buy at a supermarket and that they couldn't handle. So it's presented some real difficulties for the industry. Right. This this is the problem that's not limited to toilet paper, too, that institutional buying and packaging is different. I mean, institutional uh, buying of, say, eggs is a 72 egg package. That's kind of the the low count that you start with. Uh, and, and so and so these things with the toilet paper, not only is it not easily uh, accommodating for grocery stores, it probably doesn't have the right barcode or anything exactly. like that for the scanner. Right. Exactly. It doesn't have a barcode at all. And so the industry has been trying to get their hands on the, uh, around this issue. And what they've done is they've made a deal between the grocery stores and the distributors uh, to actually put those little stickers that you see on pieces of fruit, put those coded stickers on each roll so that they can be sold. Those big institutional packages can be broken down and sold piecemeal. Uh, and the supermarket computer systems will know what to do with it because uh, you know, grocery store stocking is a highly automated area these days. And without that barcode, things don't go anywhere. You know, you were saying before, uh, there's milk and eggs, which seem vital to the sustaining of life. I mean, milk and bread. I always think milk, bread and eggs, because they, I think people secretly want to um, make French toast when uh, there's a, when there's a snowstorm. But then eventually after they eat the French toast, they're going to have to go to the bathroom and then they're going to have to wipe, wipe their butts. And, and so somehow or other toilet paper has crept into this area of of other kinds of things. And, and I, you deal with various theorists who thought a lot about this. There, there's just something deeply personal uh, about toilet paper that there isn't about, say, paper towels. Yeah, it's a it's a it's really a personal security issue. And, um, you know, we can make fun of it, but it actually it, when people don't have it or think they're not going to have it, it can be highly unsettling. And in a, in a situation like this, where most of us have a feeling of not being totally in control and not having our usual sense of security. Every little thing that allows us to control one aspect of our life helps with mental health. And so toilet paper may seem ridiculous, but it is actually important to people. And there's also a bit of just good old American marketing involved in this. Uh, in other countries, people are accustomed to using rougher stuff. They're accustomed to using other methods to clean themselves. Uh, but we have grown accustomed to, uh, you know, the, the Charmin Mega Ultra Strong and the Cottonelle Ultra Comfort Care. I mean, just listening to the names of these products, it, you get the sense of just how much personal comfort and uh, sensibility is involved with this. And um, and so even the switch over to that scratchy single ply stuff that you have at the office uh, is unsettling for a lot of people. One thing that I found a little bit reassuring, I mean, you're, you're 
piece is uh, has all kinds of very fascinating stuff in it, including a very complicated mathematical study of how people react in institutional settings where there's one of those dispensers that has two side-by-side rolls of toilet paper, and one of them has more, and one of them has less, and certain people try to use up the one that has less, and other people gravitate to the one, the presumably fresher one that has more. Uh, there's a ton of really interesting stuff in your piece. But, you know, really, we are dealing with this situation where, A, there's a certain amount of panic buying slash hoarding going on, on, and B, there really is a supply problem because people can't get to some of the toilet paper uh, that they ordinarily would have access to for all the reasons that we've detailed. I was gratified to see your article start with descriptions of people deciding kind of at the last minute that they really shouldn't take as much toilet paper as they can fit into their Honda. Yeah, I talked to a checkout guy at a a supermarket in Asheville, North Carolina, who said uh, that while there was a lot of hoarding and people would come down his aisle with uh, giant stocks of stuff, and that was sort of disappointing, he was actually, uh, he he actually came to admire a lot of people who came there, uh, came to his cash register with a whole bunch of TP and then said, you know what, I'm going to put this back because there are other people who need it. And he saw this again and again, and he let them take the time and go back to aisle 14 and put their stuff back on the shelf. Uh, and it, it, you know, just a little sign that there is some humanity uh, left and that this is not just a dog eat dog kind of situation, even though we're all stressed out. Right. And it's worth saying, I mean, who knows whether we will reach uh, people's consciences with this. But I mean, you know, if you're at the grocery store, buy as much toilet paper as you think you need for a week or two. But I mean, you're just going to make the problem worse if you see this as your opportunity to engage in the kind of behavior that caused you to have toilet paper anxiety in the first place. Right. I mean, we're asking people to be fair and, and good to their neighbor, uh, and the industry keeps saying more is on the way. Well, that's not quite true. That's a little bit overblown because uh, given the way our economy is structured with all this just-in-time production that we've moved to in recent years, there are no giant warehouses full of toilet paper. And the factories are equipped to be basically putting out what they were putting out already. Only They can only move that at the margins uh, by adding shifts and hours. So the the logistical problem of getting the TP out to people is going to take quite a while to fix. Uh, we're talking probably months rather wow. than weeks. So, but, so Mark but Fisher, still, we, we, we do have to stop there. Mark, Mark Fisher, who writes about this from the Washington Post, the show's over. We're out of time. Usually we talk to Mark Fisher about Donald Trump. Today we're talking to him about toilet paper. Draw your own conclusions. Uh, <laughs> and uh, we will be back tomorrow with The Nose. <laughs>